I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And Nick Turan is a PhD nuclear engineer with expertise in new nuclear reactor development and old reactor history. He's worked on new reactors professionally for over 15 years and has run the public education website whatisnuclear.com since 2006. He believes that nuclear energy can help the world decarbonize rapidly and enjoys discussing this with anyone and everyone, which I suppose is appropriate for this conversation today. Nick, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. We recorded our first conversation on December 12th, 2020, which released on December 23rd of that year. It was the 13th episode of the show, a traditionally unlucky number, 13. Now, that wasn't planned, though I suppose it's sort of poetically appropriate in a kind of melancholy way because of how unlucky nuclear energy has been and how it's been wrongly perceived publicly over the decades. We're recording our second conversation a little over two and a half years later, and some exciting and troubling developments in the world of nuclear power have happened in that time, and I'm excited to talk about them with you today. Now, your first appearance on Where We Go Next was a kind of when, why, how, and what of nuclear power. When it was invented, why it's a great source of carbon-free energy, how the public has become so misinformed about it, and what we can do to hasten the development and deployment of nuclear power plants going forward. And to anyone listening, if you haven't heard Nick's first appearance on the show, I just recommend you hit pause, slide over to the show notes, tap the link for episode 13, and buckle up. Here's just one thing you said in that episode, Nick, quote, 80% of the world's energy comes from fossil fuel right now. And fossil fuel kills between four and eight million people every single year just from air pollution alone, end quote. I want to briefly compare that to death rates from other energy sources. Fossil fuels still make up the bulk of our global electricity mix, but if they all provided the same amount of energy, if all sources of energy all provided the same amount, how many deaths per terawatt hour of electricity produced would each source cause each year? Quote, let's consider how many deaths each source would cause for an average town of 150,000 people in the European Union, which consumes one terawatt hour of electricity per year. Let's call this town Euroville. If Euroville was completely powered by coal, we'd expect at least 25 people to die prematurely every year from it in a town of 150,000 people. Most of these people would die from air pollution. If everyone got their energy from oil in a city of 150,000 people, 18 people would die prematurely every year. From gas, three people would die prematurely every year. From hydropower, one person would die every year. Wind, every 25 years, a single person would die. Nuclear, only every 33 years would someone die in that city of 150,000 people. And solar, only every 50 years would someone die. Now, that's a pretty crazy comparison to the 25 deaths out of 150,000 people every year from something like coal. So, my first question to you, Nick, why is nuclear power so clean and so safe? The fundamental unique thing about nuclear power is just how much energy is packed into an atomic nucleus, this thing in the center of the atom that made up of protons and neutrons, per mass of fuel and resource. If you take a kilogram of uranium, nuclear fuel, it has about 2 million times more energy than a kilogram of any kind of chemical fuel, you know, oil, 
coal and so on, lithium batteries. And because there's so much energy and such a tiny amount of resource, the energy source is capable of producing a huge amount of electricity and heat and things that we like with a very minimal overall footprint. And that footprint includes all sorts of things like mineral resources, land usage, and of course, carbon emissions. So that's really the crux of it. It's this, these nuclear bonds between protons and neutrons are just so much more energetic than the chemical bonds of the electron shells that power pretty much any other type of energy source. Now, one of the arguments that I hear in favor of fossil fuels, and one of the reasons why fossil fuels have been outperforming energy sources like solar power and wind in the marketplace over the last few decades is because fossil fuels like oil and coal are much more energy dense in terms of amount of energy per unit. They're much more energy dense than solar or wind. If the reason why fossil fuels have maintained their dominance in the energy sector for decades is because of their energy density, why hasn't nuclear power, which is even more energy dense than fossil fuels, overtaken them? There's much more to the overall energy ecosystem than just energy density, because as you point out, if it were just energy density, then nuclear, which is 2 million times better than anything, would just utterly dominate and everything else would, would have been left in the dust decades ago. But yeah, okay, so there is more to it than energy density. It is, there's a whole system involved around the fuel. When you put fuel in a nuclear reactor, there's a pressure vessel around it, and then there's a big concrete building around it, and there's a bunch of pumps and heat exchangers, and you have to enrich the fuel. And so there's a lot more to the overall system. And as it turns out, when you build the whole system, as we've done so far, the total economics of the system for nuclear are still more expensive than, for instance, a natural gas turbine, which is a relatively simple system. It's basically a jet engine bolted to the ground that can be operated by a handful of people. And so the overall system efficiency or the simplicity of the system required to extract energy is a factor beyond just energy density. So that's been the challenge so far for nuclear, this complexity. That's been the challenge traditionally, but aren't more modern nuclear reactors simpler to operate compared to nuclear reactors from 50, 60 years ago? Aren't they getting simpler the more advanced they become? One would think. It's an interesting history, and as a serious student of reactor history, we did try out dozens and dozens of different types of nuclear reactors back in the 50s and 60s, as we talked about a little bit last time. And the reactors we have today actually beat out many different types of reactors that were proposed back then. And so the current reactors are already very advanced over even the earlier reactors. And so now people are saying, well, maybe we could do even simpler reactors. And so a lot of the older concepts are being brought back. And we're saying, well, it didn't work back in the 50s for these reasons, but various things have changed, materials have advanced, context has changed, and so it's worth another try. The reality is pretty much every different type of reactor was conceived of back in the 50s. And we tried out very many of them. So whether or not they're going to be simpler this time around is definitely proposed, but it has yet to be proven. So people are pushing to make simpler, smaller reactors. And the question of whether or not they will do better than economies of scale is still a little bit up for debate. We do need to be building more reactors, proving out whether or not they're actually better. There's a thing called the Nirvana fallacy, 
which in the nuclear industry we call Rickover's paper reactor memo. And this goes back to 1953, where Rickover published a memo that basically said, look, there's a lot of people saying that they have reactor ideas that are smaller, simpler, lighter, use off-the-shelf components, very easy to operate, no complications. And then there are practical reactors, which are all behind schedule, heavy, and dealing with challenging technical issues. And so throughout the industry's history, we've always had this debate between sort of the ideal future reactors and the actual practical reactors. And so today, there are plenty of futuristic reactors being developed, and whether or not they will actually exceed the capabilities of the existing reactors will only be determined once those reactors are up and running. So it's a little bit up in the air, but we are trying. A couple recent guests of the show include Andy Lapsa, who's the CEO of Stoke Space. They're making reusable rockets that can be fully launched, land, and reuse the exact same rocket 24 hours later. And I also spoke with Ashley Vance. He wrote the 2015 biography on Elon Musk, which was a bestseller for many months, and recently came out with a book called When the Heavens Went on Sale. And both books talk about how traditionally rockets that take satellites and people to space have been very complex and very expensive to build. The same safety measures required around sending rockets to space are still at play with these reusable rockets that are much cheaper and faster to build. Yet somehow we've gone from, you know, the American government employing thousands of people to send a single rocket into space for hundreds of millions of dollars that then explodes over the ocean to much smaller, nimbler teams being able to make smaller, faster, more efficient rockets, which can go all the way up to space and land and be reused, ideally 24 hours later, but even today, 21-day turnarounds with companies like SpaceX. So it's been on my mind as I've been preparing for this conversation, why is that increasing efficiency and lowering of cost and smaller and smaller workforce happening in a space like rocket launches, which are not without their safety considerations. Oftentimes you're, you're involving human beings who can potentially die from explosion on the tarmac or die on their way up to space. So there's a lot of regulation there. Why is that space improving in efficiency and workforce capability and all these other things where nuclear power seems to be stuck at this you know, you need 500 to 800 employees working at a power plant at all times. Why are the smaller, more modular house-sized nuclear power plants that I hear can run on 16 to 30 people? Why are those still a pipe dream when rocket companies are able to make such headway over the decades? I actually wondered this to a degree myself. I mean, has have we done a comparison between the overall regulatory burden for rockets compared to nuclear reactors? I am quite sure that the regulatory concerns behind nuclear reactors is just a much more complex challenge. And so even any design project for a nuclear reactor, regardless of size, requires a certain amount of analysis in order to satisfy the world's strictest regulator, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And this is where economies of scale pushed reactors to be big in the olden days because you know, a certain amount of engineering work gives a reactor, and if it's a much bigger reactor that would have much more revenue, which are just measured from sales of kilowatt hours. But certainly people are now trying to say, well, let's make these smaller reactors. But for instance, NuScale, which is a small modular reactor company in Oregon, 
has gotten a design certification from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is sort of their stamp that says we have done enough review of this reactor to say that it it will be safe and we can start building them in different sites. Well, that took two plus billion dollars to achieve that design certification. And that, like you say, thousands of people. So why is it? It's just because the amount of analysis, design, preparation, what if scenarios, simulation of different conditions, environmental impact reports covering wide areas. It's just a bigger lift for a nuclear reactor than for a rocket. Is it necessary? Like in your experience in this industry over the last 15 some odd years, is that $2 billion design certification, obviously certification is required, but like how much of that process is necessary and good and required versus graft, corruption, redundant processes based on what you've read and people you've spoken with, what's necessary and what's waste? Perfect question. If you ask the regulators at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission whether or not they consider alternatives, like their job is to license a nuclear reactor, and you can ask them, do you consider what happens if you don't license that reactor? Like, what if it is replaced with just an average energy source, which is a mix of natural gas and hydro and wind and solar? Well, because of the, the fossil component of that, the reality is if you don't do it, you get a lot more carbon emissions, you get a lot more air pollution. And so you have major health effects and environmental effects. But they do not consider that by law. So they cannot say, well, this nuclear reactor is better than the alternative. They just have to say, is this nuclear reactor perfectly safe or not? And so that's that's a little bit ridiculous. And it would be very nice if the regulators could consider alternatives instead of just considering a reactor versus a vacuum. And if that were to be the case, I do think that the regulatory burden would reduce significantly. There is value in regulation, certainly. These machines have hazards and need regulation. And so having a certain amount of regulation is perfectly appropriate. But the degree that we have right now does seem a little much considering the safety performance that you eloquently described earlier and the risks that we're up against with the health impacts of air pollution, and then this impending doom coming from the carbon emissions of climate change. Yeah, that does seem broken. The idea that this regulatory process is only considering what would be caused in an imperfect scenario and not considering what would be prevented in an imperfect scenario. I mean, that's that stat that you you shared in our first conversation that pollution from fossil fuels kills four to eight million people every year just from air pollution alone, mostly through premature deaths. I'm struggling to even understand why that's not on the table there. It's like if there's a burning building and there's like a hundred people inside and you know they're going to die if you don't start putting that fire out with a water hose. And then you have to go through a regulatory process to make sure that the water hose doesn't hurt anyone when it's going off It's like, oh, well, maybe the water pressure from the fire hose might accidentally injure or kill someone inside of the burning building. And if it can be proven to kill even one person inside that burning building, I'm sorry, we just can't approve this fire hose. Now, if you go through a $2 billion regulatory process to get this fire hose approved, then maybe after it's approved, 10 years after that approval, you can start constructing these fire hoses for millions of dollars. But meanwhile, the 100 people in the burning building are going to die. And it just seems like there should be more urgency 
around the existing deaths from non-nuclear sources, and I'm grasping it to why that's not the case. Yeah, I, I agree. When I asked that question recently and got that answer, I was quite dissatisfied. To be fair, they have done some things to try to help the situation. I mean, this design certification process is intended to help with this. So if you pick a design and go through the effort of getting the design certification, that design certification applies for any number of reactors that you build of that specific design. And so if you wanted to decarbonize rapidly and you could choose one reactor, one reactor design, and then build that model all over the place, you still have to do site-specific regulatory work. And they still are going to inspect you all the way through operation and decommissioning and so on. But the big lift in getting that design certification could be spread out if you build a large number of reactors. The issue is, and this is maybe a problem with the nuclear industry, we can't settle on one particular reactor design. There are probably nearly a hundred different reactor vendors around the world right now, all offering a different type of reactor, all working nearly independently on a different design, hoping that their design is going to have the highest performance. Whereas it might be wise for the nuclear industry to say, well, let's collaborate for now. Let's focus on a good enough design that has proven itself capable and high performance enough to produce reliable low carbon electricity at a reasonable price. And let's, you know, take that design certification and build a bunch of those to kind of make a big dent in decarbonization right now and then use the proceeds to sort of fund more futuristic or more higher capable but higher risk reactors of the future. But that's something that the the industry just hasn't done a good job of. So I don't want to put all the blame on the regulators. There's certainly an issue there, but the, there's other things that could be done to help alleviate this situation as well. Of course. But is the onus on those creating the designs or is the onus on whoever the consumer is, whoever the buyer is, right? Because like you take Betamax and VHS or HD DVD and Blu-ray or different electric cars or iPhones versus Samsung versus Google phone, et cetera, right? The individual who chooses the winner in the marketplace is usually the consumer. Now, the consumer might not always choose the best product and you're going to have people arguing over if Android phones are better than iPhones, et cetera, et cetera. But every marketplace eventually driven by the consumer's choices has a winner. So who is the consumer? Who's purchasing these nuclear power plants? And why aren't they driving which nuclear power plant or plants out of these 100 designs are the ones being built? That's a very complex question. And it's different from region to region. In many cases, I mean, in places like China, which are basically centrally planned governments. The purchaser is the government. The government provides the financing and then coordinates the state-run construction utility companies to go out and build them and operate them. And in some of those places, I mean, you'll see a lot more standardization. China has built lots of different types of reactors, but now has kind of their own indigenous standardized design, and they're focusing on that one. Russia is the same way. They just make the same exact reactor that they have preferred for a long time. And then you get into the Western markets where it's much more democratic and you see much more difference and diversity in design. A lot of it still is being made not really by the consumers and not even by the utilities. I mean, the utilities who are the owner operators of the plants make the final decision, but there's a lot that goes into that decision beyond just what reactor they think looks best. There's a lot of various government programs providing help with financing loan guarantees, and so on. And the governments and policy, which are driven by sort of what the people want democratically, 
do have some design-specific criteria that they, they need to meet. For instance, the United States, we recently defined an advanced reactor as with a pretty sort of bending over backwards definition that's like a, a reactor that's better than the currently operating reactors. It's not the one in Georgia that's boondoggling and has advanced capabilities in a certain number of areas. And then if you make that type of reactor, you can get additional incentives and funding to help develop that reactor. But there's an issue with that, which is that (laughs) those benefits, you can claim those benefits and say, my reactor will have these benefits. But again, until you until you build and operate actually multiple reactors of any given design, you don't really know its overall performance in advance. And so that's, I guess that's a big difference between smaller things like phones and other things that you can kind of quickly put them out there and see which ones people like. It's just such a huge effort just to get one reactor of a, a type out that it's just a much slower 20, 30 year type iteration. And so it just doesn't work as well with like, let's just put a few out there and see which one works best. It's just messier than that. Yeah, but it seems like a total chicken and egg problem, right? Like, it, it's a huge lift to get a nuclear power plant out into the wild, largely because of the regulatory environment that makes it so hard to get a nuclear power plant out there. And then that makes it hard to get it built, which then makes it hard to prove, which then makes it hard. It creates this endless cycle of... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Always going to the next. And, and there's a great... I mean, there's a beautiful example of this right now. I mean, in Georgia, we built the best Westinghouse advanced light water sort of normal-ish reactor, but next generation. Is this the AP-1000? The AP-1000, yes. So we built the Vogel AP-1000. One of them is at full power and this, there's two units. And the second unit should be at full power later on this year. It boondoggled. We hadn't built a reactor for a very long time. It's double the price it was supposed to be. It took twice as long as it was supposed to. But I mean, this is the moment. Like we just figured out how to do it. The design is complete. It's ready to rock. There's people who built it and know how to build it. But the appetite for building another one is just zero. Everybody's like, oh, we our reactors are <laughs> much better than that one, you know, because you look at a practical reactor project and it's it's behind schedule, it's over budget, and you want to say, oh, we don't want to do anything like that. Ours is better and different and so on. And so it then just pushes you on this endless cycle where you say, well, let's do this other one. And then you spend 20 years developing that one. And by the time it gets to the nearing full power, well, it's boondoggling a little bit too, because it's just a first of a kind. Any first of a kind is going to have these struggles. And so this kind of a cycle prevents us from getting into an nth of a kind where we really could demonstrate, you know, learning, remember how we did it last time and start getting those costs and schedules down to the reasonable level. And this is the hope of all the people who are pushing and excited about these small modular reactors. If it's a much smaller reactor, well, it should be less of a boondoggle. Even if it does go over budget, it's a smaller overall budget. So maybe there will be a way to get through those first five or six to the point that you can really achieve those economies of mass production and really start hitting your economic numbers well. But I mean, even then, we're already seeing with new scale, prices are going up. Some of their customers are bailing out of the project. And so, you know, there's a reasonable likelihood <laughs> of a bit of a boondoggle. And so we're in the situation again where the first one and the second one, who's going to continue that project to the seventh one where we really can get to it? It's been an intractable problem for the industry, except in, again, the centrally planned governments and, well, and to a degree, France. 
France, as we said last time, picked a good enough design. They had built one of, they serialized it, and they built 56 of them. And now they have the cleanest air, lowest carbon electricity in Europe, besides Iceland, which is all geothermal. Yeah, nearly 70% of France's electricity comes from nuclear power alone. Yeah, I, I wish that we could make smaller, medium-sized, home-sized nuclear power plants. I don't know why we can't live in a future right now where the, you know, a 100,000-person city like Bend, Oregon can't just have a single small nuclear power plant that is maybe five to 10 times cheaper to build than one that needs to be enormous and run by 400 people. But, you know, that doesn't seem to be the world we're living in. But on the point that you said just now, Nick, about knowledge being passed down and kind of a lack of people who are working in this industry that can kind of pass this knowledge on to the next generation. You said something similar in episode 13. You said, quote, an unbelievable amount of research and development went into nuclear technology in the 50s and 60s. The smartest people in the world were all working on nuclear reactor technology, end quote. And then you later said, quote, and then as the 70s started coming along and these plants were operating, several things happened. Interest rates went up and nuclear plants are very capital intensive. And then people who were capable of building nuclear reactors kind of got tied up. And so there were delays just based on labor issues, end quote. And that stood out to me because today a lot of very smart, motivated, entrepreneurial Americans and people from around the world, frankly, are going to places like Silicon Valley or building rockets or building electric vehicles are at the forefront of exciting technological advances. So if the smartest people in the world were working on nuclear technology in the 50s and 60s, you know, if that, along with, you know, the work that was being done in NASA at that time, if that was like the sexy forefront of where technology was, wasn't this excitement and prestige attracting future nuclear physicists, engineers, scientists, and so on? Or to use a, a pun that will make more sense in a bit, why weren't the smartest people in the world in the 50s and 60s, in effect, breeding through interest, education, and recruitment, new, younger, smart people who'd build the reactors of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and today. Why wasn't that happening? Nuclear power became exceedingly uncool in the 1970s. And so it, it just was not hip for a number of reasons. There were some safety concerns. There was an incorrect but very real association between nuclear reactors and nuclear weapons. This is the Cold War was ramping up. There was fallout going from nuclear weapons tests around the world and brought up all sorts of concerns. And people just started saying no nukes, meaning no nuclear weapons. And that just seamlessly transitioned into no nukes, no power plants. And so as the environmentalist movement was born, nuclear power was just totally uncool. And then there were a series of accidents. We had Three Mile Island. There were the movies that were coming out, like the China Syndrome. And then eight years later, Chernobyl happened. And by that time, people had just fed up with it. Nuclear power was sort of out as a cool thing to do. And the young people had moved on and they went on to other industries. And the people who were operating plants basically said, well, let's not mention where we are. If we're, we're just going to get protested, so let's just not say anything at all. And so we all turned inward and everybody basically forgot about nuclear power until along came climate change. And all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, here's a already up and running zero carbon base load energy source, maybe we should look back into that. And that's when it just started getting interesting again. And young people 
looking for something to do related to climate change, we're going to engineering schools and discovering nuclear engineering departments, which is exactly what happened to me, as I said. So it became cool again, specifically because of the low carbon nature of it. But just the fad was great in the 50s. It went away. It was uncool. And now it's cool again. And and things related to nuclear fission are even extra cool. We can talk about fusion if you want, but that's definitely in that category as well. Oh, we'll be talking about nuclear fusion. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you worry. Nuclear power isn't just incredible because it doesn't put out carbon, but it also produces so little waste compared to traditional energy sources. There was a stat that you shared in our first conversation that wedged itself deep inside of my brain, and it was that an average citizen of the U.S. living about 88 years would create about one and a half soda cans of nuclear waste total if that was their sole source of electricity, you know, assuming it came from a traditional light water reactor. Let's contrast that to how much waste they would create if they got all of their power needs and energy and heat and driving around their car from a traditional fossil fuel source. And that is, if they lived 88 years, they would create 2 million times more material. So can you elaborate on that briefly and what causes that massive difference? Yeah, that goes back to this energy density argument that I made first thing, which is just, again, that there's just so much more energy packed into the nuclear bonds between the protons and neutrons in the center of the atom than in chemical bonds of the electrons, which is what powers, again, the chemical-based energy sources. So that's the factor of 2 million. And so, again, when I said there's a lower footprint, lower land use, lower resources use, the thing I didn't mention that you're bringing up is there's also a much lower waste impact. So if you use a lot fewer resources as fuel, well, you make a lot fewer waste products coming out the tail end. And so that's really the crux of it. It's just nuclear bonds have far more energy in a much smaller space and so therefore can produce huge amounts of electricity with a almost minuscule amount of waste. There's something known as the black swan effect. People are very bad at conceptualizing like a lot of bad stuff happening in kind of a disaggregated long period of time over a great span of geography or time, et cetera, right? Like it makes it hard for communal action if the deaths are spread out, you know, four to eight million people could die every year like they do from fossil fuels. But if they're not concentrated in like a single area or if it doesn't happen in like a singular traumatic event, it's really hard for us to kind of conceptualize that harm and then work together to stop it as opposed to something I would imagine we'd all believe is tragic, like a 9-11 in which a few thousand people die. And, you know, again, that's a few thousand people I think we all wish hadn't died, but it's nothing compared to four to eight million people. And yet, if it happens in a kind of a concentrated, traumatic, horrific time all at once, we can act together to respond to it as opposed to, you know, if 8 million people diffused over the entire world die over the course of 365 days through shorter lifespans from fossil fuels, we don't really get out of bed for that. And it seems to me that that's why if a Chernobyl, and you talked about this in episode 13, like there's an HBO show about Chernobyl where, you know, a few dozen people, I think, died from immediate effects and radiation over the course of a couple decades. But you yourself were like, where's the HBO show for the 8 million people who die every year from fossil fuels? 
And that seems to be a big reason why that 2 million times more waste stat doesn't land with anyone. Yeah, exactly. And yes, we talked about this last time, but yeah, just reiterating on it. I mean, I see it as maybe we found nuclear power at the wrong point in human evolution. I mean, we're too close to our evolutionary past where our main concern was a a tiger jumping out of the grass and eating it. You know, something very concrete, very scary, very immediate. We have no evolutionary capacity to be afraid of or to understand or to properly contextualize large-scale epidemiological events like like air pollution. The same issue is with climate change. I mean, people are now getting it. I think it's getting better. But I'm amazed that we don't see the type of protests against just air pollution alone, which is this current health emergency, as opposed to the future health emergency of climate change. But again, it's just our brains are not quite there. Uh, I think we'll get there eventually. We have the tools of science and large meta analyses. <laughs> and I mean, the scientific bodies are unanimous. You, you look at Europe, they classified nuclear power as meeting all of the criteria for green energy. The UAE has just gotten the first green certificates for its aluminum, which is generated based on their new nuclear power. And so, I mean, it's there's things happening slowly, but yeah, the average person is like, geez, big accidents that I can name are scary, abstract dangers that are much bigger I don't have to worry about. You know, and this is a great way to seg to the topic of breeder reactors, which we only touched on a little bit during our last conversation. But, you know, if an entire 88-year-long life were powered entirely by a fast breeder nuclear reactor, it would generate 10 times less waste than that 1.5 soda cans of waste generated by the traditional light water nuclear reactor most people are familiar with today. So in a nutshell, what's the fundamental difference between a light water reactor and a breeder reactor? And why do we have so many of the former built and almost none of the latter? The fundamental thing that a breeder reactor does that a non-breeder reactor doesn't do it can access the energy in the majority isotope of uranium and so let me back up a little bit if you dig up uranium you know there's uranium on the periodic table of the elements you can dig it up in the ground if you look at it there's two different types of uranium atoms there's uranium 235 which has fewer neutrons than the other isotope they're called which is uranium 238 so they have the same number of protons they act chemically identical but their nuclear cores are much different. And U-235 is 0.7% of natural uranium, whereas U-238 is 99.3%, the vast majority. Well, current light water reactors, regular reactors, non-breeder reactors, basically only use that tiny minority isotope, uranium-235. If a neutron comes anywhere near that atom, it splits and releases a huge amount of energy. And so it's easier to make reactors that run off of that isotope. And so that's the basic reason we started out with that type of reactor. But a breeder reactor does some, through various types of things you can do in the design, a breeder reactor then can actually access the energy in the 99.3% isotope. And so now, rather than looking for high-grade uranium ore, you can actually run a breeder reactor off of average crustal granite. This is an incredible fact. If you dig up an average piece of granite, and you pull out the trace amounts of uranium and thorium in there and put it in a breeder reactor, there's 20 times more energy in that piece of granite than there would be chemical energy in the same mass of pure coal 
burn in a coal plant. This is where the concept of burn the rocks. You could power the whole world off of granite and move 20 times less mass than you would have to move to do the same with coal. It's really, it's an astounding amount of energy. Wait, just from like the granite that's in kitchen countertops? Yes. Yes. You could take that granite. My mom and dad work in the tile, marble, granite, limestone industry they have for decades. And my understanding of what needed to be powering nuclear power plants was like actual hunks of uranium, which were then enriched, you know, like the kind of enrichment we hear about countries like Iran and other, you know, China and other countries doing, obviously you have to enrich that uranium way more in order to make a nuclear weapon. But even a nuclear power plant, like the ones that are operating today, still need to enrich that natural uranium before it can even power a plant. So just the idea of just being able to take a granite slab and use that to power a breeder is kind of blowing my mind. I should clarify a little bit. You can't just throw granite into a reactor and have it light up. That reactor has to already be started. And so usually they start up with enriched uranium. And most breeder reactors do need even a little bit more enrichment than a water-cooled reactor anyway, just to get started. But once it's started, and this is the key thing, once it's started, if you take those uranium atoms, there's just a few uranium atoms and thorium atoms, you, you'd crush up that granite, you take the little bit of uranium and thorium in there, and then you fabricate it down into little uranium pellets. You can then stick it in that reactor and get the energy out of it. So you have to have the started up reactor already. But you could then just feed it the uranium from granite basically forever without doing any additional enrichment. And when that reactor's vessel retires, you could just start up another reactor in a new reactor vessel and so on and just keep feeding it that uranium and granite. I, I argue that it's just as renewable as anything that comes out of the sun. I mean, the nuclear fusion in the sun powers wind and solar and hydro, obviously bio. The sun will last for, what, 5 billion years. It'll consume us in like 2 billion years and it'll burn out in, in 4 or 5 billion years. And if we just got 100% of our primary energy as a world from breeder reactors, there's enough uranium that we have access to to run the entire world that way for 4 billion years. And so it lasts just as long as the sun. So it really is, I mean, it's a, it's a step change in terms of like overall long-term sustainability and resource utilization. So regular nuclear is fantastic. Breeder reactors are through the roof. Let me know if my analogy is on point here. It sounds like with a breeder reactor, enrichment is the spark that starts the flame. But then after that, you can just throw, quote unquote, twigs of uranium into the fire to keep it going, as opposed to a light water reactor or a reactor of that type, a non-breeder reactor. You have to keep sparking it over and over and over and over and over again until the fire goes out. Yeah, exactly. That's a perfect analogy. We sometimes just say a regular reactor is just burning the heads of matches instead of using those matches to start an actual, you know, dry out the log and then burn the log. Whereas a breeder reactor does just that. It's like you start with enriched uranium, you surround it with a, you know, a wet log, so to speak, of uranium-238 or thorium. Thorium breeders are perfectly analogous to uranium breeders. And we talked about that a little bit last time as well. So then that spark dries out the wood, sometimes we say, and then it can just take over. And then you just have to keep feeding in regular natural uranium into the system and it'll run forever. Now, well, the way it does it, I have to say the word. And one of the reasons, I mean, people worry about this word, but when a neutron goes into uranium-238, that 
nucleus doesn't split, but it goes through two nuclear reactions where it converts neutrons into protons. And so if you look two elements over from uranium, you'll see it's plutonium. So it turns a neutron plus uranium-238 turns into plutonium. And then the next neutron that comes along splits that plutonium as fuel. And that's how you get access to that energy that's stored in that majority isotope. So there are numerous concerns and, and worries about just even mentioning the word plutonium. And so that's basically like what happened to breeder reactors. We all had national programs. The goal in the 70s, I mean, all the different countries are like, well, obviously, we're all going to nuclear power. And if we do that, the uranium resources in high-grade mines will be depleted unless we go over to breeder reactors, at which point they will last forever and ever. And so let's build breeder reactors. And everybody, all the different countries developed them, built them. And, well, and numerous things happened. I mean, there were technical challenges. These reactors are a little bit more complicated. It's harder to breed. You have to do chemical separations. You take the fuel out and you melt it down and you separate it chemically and then refabricate fuel. That all has to be done robotically in big shielded windows. So it gets more expensive. It's complicated. And then people worry about, well, if you're separating plutonium, what if someone came in there and stole that plutonium? Couldn't they make a nuclear weapon? And so that was a major concern. Jimmy Carter was particularly concerned about that. And this happened basically around the world. And then eventually it was like, okay, well, let's just burn more fossil. And people effectively gave up on breeder reactors in the mid-1980s. And they've been sitting dormant, and now there's a bunch of startup companies trying to bring breeder reactors back. So that's exciting. Yeah, not to make light of it, but yeah, everyone got way too concerned that the fire hoses were going to hurt people, and they let a thousand houses burn. Yeah, and if we'd pushed through that, no one would ever have even heard of climate change. It wouldn't have been a concern. Just like kids today don't know about acid rain. We solved that problem with the Clean Air Act. Climate change would have been completely a non-issue, and we'd be thinking about other things at this point. I'm a little disappointed. Yeah, the dustbin of history along Y2K. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Another feature of the breeder reactor that differentiates it from non-breeder reactors is that not only can it run on raw and unenriched uranium once the spark, quote unquote, is started, but it can cycle through the fuel over and over again, basically extracting all the energy from it, whereas a non-breeder reactor can only cycle through that fuel once. Do I have that right? That's right. The non-breeder just burns that little uranium-235 and then it's done. But the breeder converts a little bit of that uranium-238 into plutonium, burns the plutonium, and then you can bring it around for another cycle and just keep chipping away at that huge block of uranium-238. And so you can just recycle it again and again and again. You, you build up plutonium, you recycle it, you burn the plutonium, and you just keep chipping away until you get through basically all of the uranium. There's always some process losses. So we never say you burn 100% of the uranium atoms. We usually say like you know, the limits are probably 90% of the uranium atoms can actually get utilized. On the topic of breeder reactors, I was looking at energyeducation.ca. It's a website run by Professor Jason Donev and funded by the University of Calgary. And it describes breeder reactors or summarizes them as such, quote, breeder reactors are a type of nuclear reactor, which produces more fissile materials than they consume, end quote, which you've touched on here. And so uh, <laughs> this question might be totally stupid from a layman's perspective, but I'm hoping in my stupidity, I'm able to pull an interesting answer out of you. So I'd like to tie this to nuclear fusion. The promise of nuclear fusion, the reason it's sort of the brass ring of energy that we've grasped at for decades, is that a fusion reaction creates more energy 
than what was put in to initiate the reaction. So on December 13th, 2022, the head of the U.S. Department of Energy announced that on December 5th, a fusion reaction at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California did exactly that. It achieved, quote, net positive energy. So two megajoules of energy went into the reaction and three megajoules came out. Or simply, it put out more energy than was put in. And it's the first time in history that humans have ever achieved this. To tie this back to breeder reactors, to quote from Scientific American, quote, some fast breeder reactors can generate up to 30% more fuel than they use, end quote. And again, apologies if this question is dumb, (laughs) but what's the difference between energy generation in the case of nuclear fusion and fuel generation in the case of nuclear fission? If a breeder reactor generates 30% more fuel than it's consuming, why isn't this achievement as significant as generating three megajoules of energy out of two megajoules of input? That's a, yeah, that's a fun one. Let's see. Let's see where I go with this. So, I mean, I would say that the, the breeder capability is much more sort of exotic and crazy than getting more energy out than you put in. I mean, every practical energy source used today gets far more energy out than you put in, right? I mean, if you take wood, you light a match, that takes the flick of a wrist, and you light it, you set the match down there, and here comes a big, huge fire producing lots of, you know, many megajoules per minute. And so that's just fundamental. And with nuclear fission, it's the same thing. You put a neutron next to one of these atoms, it just splits and reduces vastly more energy, thousands of times more energy than that neutron had in the first place. And so it's like a fundamental need of any energy source to get more energy out than you put in. So the fact that fusion is doing that is a very early milestone. It's like, okay, well, it's called scientific break even because, well, they got one megajoule out of the little control volume they drew around the target. Well, the lasers that were powering the building required 400 megajoules. So it was nowhere near actual break even. It was, they call it scientific break even. It's kind of a weasel word. But Anyway, it's a it's an interesting milestone, but all it basically says is like, hey, maybe it's possible to use fusion as a net producer of energy. So it's very basic. So then with breeder reactors, the fact that it's making more fuel is just, it's sort of next level, but it's hard to compare to fusion because generally fusion fuel is considered to be pretty plentiful. So there isn't usually a scarcity issue with fusion, although it depends which type of fusion you're using. Some of them want to use helium-3, which is basically only available on the surface of the moon. But in general, there's a lot of fusion fuel, so it's just not really a concern. Any other type of, like with a uranium reactor, I mean, you're always concerned a little bit about scarcity of uranium, and breeder reactors make that concern go away. So that's what's interesting about that. So it's a little hard to compare, but yeah, I'll sort of reiterate that I think a breeder in fission is just much more sophisticated than like, oh, wow, you got more energy out than you put in. Like, okay, maybe you can turn it into a power plant. Okay. Well, then if nuclear fusion is just accomplishing what, to say what you just said, what wood was accomplishing for human beings, you know, 100,000 plus years ago, break down why nuclear fusion would be so amazing. Why have we become so excited about it? And what are we missing here? Well, it's certainly, it is definitely interesting. And if we can turn it into a practical power source, it has lots of benefits. I mean, it has most of the benefits of nuclear fission, but it doesn't have nearly as many of the downsides. So it doesn't make 
it doesn't make a bunch of high-level radioactive waste. So even though nuclear fission reactors make a small volume, it still makes high-level radioactive waste. And that has been a major concern and is the first thing people ask about and so on. Even though I claim there's perfectly practical solutions and that shouldn't be holding us back, it's still legitimately a, a downside of nuclear fission. Or with fusion, you make a little bit of radioactive waste, but you don't make as much. It doesn't last as long. It's orders of magnitude less of a concern. I don't know how that's going to pan out in the end. A lot of fusion reactors use and make a lot of tritium. Tritium, you may have heard of recently, what's in that water, in those water tanks at Fukushima that have been just this huge controversy for years and years. You know, can we release this tritium into the ocean, even though it's 10 times less than any drinking water regulation? I mean, you could literally go drink that water and be 10 times below every country's tritium regulation. So there's no doubt that fusion makes a lot less radioactive material than fission. Quantify that for us, because if a breeder reactor makes on average less than two ounces of radioactive waste per the lifespan of all the energy required to power an 88-year-old person's life, like how much less waste are we talking here compared to that? So quantifying radiation is interesting. The best way to do it is to just say how many decays per second. We call it activity. So it's like how many nuclear decays are happening per second in your handful of whatever this waste product is. I don't have an exact number for you, but it is significant. I mean, it's orders of magnitude less. So instead of two ounces per person, which times the world population of nearing eight billion people is a is a chunk. I mean, it's a stack on a football field depending on how you package it, you know, 30 feet-ish high for the world. Whereas with fusion, it's like nothing. I mean, it's like it would be a centimeter high on a football field or something like that. Oh, wow. Okay, so it is significant, yeah. It's very significant. And the nature of it is also different. I mean, the the half-life of fission waste, I mean, on average, if you eat it in 500 years, it could still cause harm. If you just stand next to it in 500 years, it won't. But if you eat it or breathe it, there's some concern. Whereas with the types of radionuclides that come out of fusion in general, it's going to be closer to natural levels in decades rather than hundreds of years. So there's, there is a major radiological advantage in fusion for sure. And if I understand it correctly, I mean, nuclear fusion has been compared to like how the sun works. So in that respect, is it also different from nuclear fusion in that way? And how is nuclear fusion like how our sun works and nuclear fusion is not? Well, it's, yes, the sun works 100% through nuclear fusion. It's gravitationally confined, so it's really big, and so that pushes the atoms close enough together to fuse. And so the sun is mostly running on proton-proton fusion. It's just a single proton and another proton. They get pushed together by the intense pressure of the gravity of the sun. They fuse, and they they become helium, and that releases a bunch of energy. And then as any star goes through its life cycle, you run out of protons and then you start fusing helium ions and then you start making something bigger and then carbon and pretty soon it's called stellar nucleosynthesis. This is how all the atoms in the universe have been created in these solar furnaces. Anyway, eventually it runs out and it supernovas. I mean, the sun is absolutely running on pure nuclear fusion reactions. Those reactions are very similar to the types of reactions that people on Earth are now trying to get energy out of. Instead of using gravity to push the atoms close together, we use a bunch of different interesting ways. The National Ignition Facility that you just mentioned uses big lasers, and they form a giant sphere of lasers that all shine down onto a single point at once, and it causes a bunch of X-ray radiation to come out perfectly spherically, and those X-rays then compress a little fuel pellet to 
you know, some extreme density and those atoms then get close enough to start touching. And I mean, the nuclei get close enough to start fusing and they release energy just like in the sun. It's basically the same reaction that's happening in the sun, just with a little different fuel. We usually use instead of proton, proton, we use like deuterium and tritium. So that's a, those are sort of exotic versions of hydrogen with more neutrons. What are your thoughts on nuclear fusion as a future source of energy. You're an expert in this field. What's the reality of this research, its potential? I mean, to put it bluntly, is the juice worth the squeeze? Is all of the research and time and energy and hype that we're building around this? Just like you said, Nick, like had we been building all these nuclear power plants, just traditional nuclear fission decades ago, climate change would just be a fun joke we tell to each other about something people were worrying about 50 years past. Is nuclear fusion a distraction? Is it a pipe dream? Should we be focusing on it at all? Or would it be better served if all the scientists who were working on nuclear fusion, which might be actually achievable 50 years from now, should they just be helping us build regular nuclear fission plants today? (laughs) There's a joke that everyone knows that fusion is 20 years away that's been going on since 1958. I mean, fusion was announced in the early 50s and people were like, we're a few years away from a power producing reactor. And there was a lot of excitement throughout. And there's been all sorts of interesting science that has been developed through fusion research. Lots of great things came out of it. Early semiconductor fabrication technology came out of fusion research that basically led to the computer revolution. It was a way of etching microprocessors with a real thin little plasma that could go through. So that was, there's a lot of benefit that has come out of fusion research. Also, it's not a zero-sum game. I mean, if all the research funding of the world was spent on either nuclear fusion or fission, then I would maybe say something different. But there's there's absolutely reason to be funding fusion research. There's a bunch of, I mean, right now there's a dozen fusion reactor startup companies just in the United States that are highly funded billionaires and other investors throwing in all sorts of money. And they are making claims like, for instance, they will have net electricity this year out of some of these companies. And their commercial power plant is going to be selling electricity to Microsoft in 2028. And so they're making claims that are, to me, it seems totally ridiculous. I mean, they no one has produced even close to actual net energy notwithstanding scientific break-even. Nobody's won dozens of Nobel Prizes for making big changes, but they're making claims that are extremely exciting and interesting. And I don't blame people for putting funding into it. I don't think there's much harm. I don't think it's much of a distraction. If it turns out that fusion is figured out, I mean, I do believe it's certainly possible to get a practical power plant out of fusion. I don't know exactly when it's going to happen, and I don't know its relative cost compared to fracked natural gas and so on. But I believe it's certainly possible, so it's worth working on. I am absolutely skeptical of the claims that are being made by these companies. But I mean, I would be pleasantly surprised if sure enough, they came out and they were like, here's the world's cheapest zero carbon nuclear fusion power plant and let's build it. I mean, that would be fantastic news. And if that's what it takes. And so, you know, at that point, fission would basically be, <laughs> it just didn't keep up. Like if, if that happens, then fission w- would have missed the bus, so to speak. And that would be fine. That would help humanity and that would be great. So anyway, so I don't think it's bad. I am super skeptical. I mean, I think some of the claims are like borderline fraudulent, but that doesn't mean people can't do their own due diligence and fund what they want to fund. So (laughs) that's my current feeling. I mentioned the European Union earlier. Let's jump back across the pond. 
Until March of 2011, Germany obtained one quarter of its electricity from nuclear energy, utilizing 17 reactors. Now that's far behind France, which you mentioned earlier was getting nearly 70% of its annual electricity being generated from nuclear reactors. But hey, a quarter is nothing to shake a stick at. But as of April 15th of this year, Germany now has zero operating nuclear power plants. It's closed them all down, citing that nuclear power is, quote, unsustainable, dangerous, and a distraction from speeding up renewable energy, end quote, according to an article about the closures on CNN. What are your thoughts, Nick, on Germany's about-face on nuclear power? What do you believe caused this significant change of direction? And what does the future hold for their energy needs? It's been disappointing, and we, the nuclear advocates, we talk about it all the time, and we compare Germany versus France as two different case studies on the energy choices that people can make going forward, and we sort of try to point out the differences significantly. I mean, the history of their transition, that's their word, energy transition, you know, it was designed back in the 1980 or earlier, was designed specifically to move away from oil and uranium. It was just part of this general worldwide turn against nuclear for various reasons. And it just became, I mean, German people just don't like nuclear power. And I I don't know if there's a cultural element to it. Um, It happened well before any of the major incidents. And then Chernobyl absolutely sped it up. They made a bunch of policy decisions at that point. And there's this interesting story where Germany had built a cutting edge breeder reactor and they had put fuel in it and they were about to turn it on. And like the, I mean, the day or the week that they were about to turn it on, there were protests in the street. The protests shut that reactor. I mean, they, they never turned it on. They decommissioned it. They took the fuel out. And now it is an amusement park in the ultimate insult to nuclear reactors. And then, I mean, years went by. They kept trying to phase out. They burned more coal. Eventually, they started investing very heavily in wind and solar. And they did do the world a great service by paying high premiums for early wind and solar that probably helped significantly get them into the economies of mass production that helped bring the cost down of wind and solar for everybody. So that was certainly a good thing that came out of this. But then they still chose to phase out all their nuclear plants before phasing out their coal plants. And various academics have published studies showing, similar to the stat you've been saying earlier, had they phased out coal first instead of nuclear, they would be saving a thousand lives per year, again, just from air pollution. You can go to this great website called Electricity Map. Electricity Map shows the live carbon intensity of wherever they have data from. So it's a world map and it shows every country and it shows their current live carbon intensity. And every time you look at it, I mean, there's France and Germany right next to each other. France basically zeroed out, always green. And then there's Germany, which turns from dark brown to yellow, you know, in the middle of the day when there's plenty of wind and solar. So, again, it's a sad story. They just don't like nuclear power. Greenpeace gets more than 37% of their total funding from Germany. There's just something cultural against nuclear. And, yeah, it's it's sad. Um, And they've made good progress in just pushing wind and solar, but they have made bad progress in decarbonizing their total energy system. I don't know what kinder way to say this, but it seems like such a self-own. Like it, it seems like nuclear is imperfect and occasionally, very occasionally, accidents happen. Again, that cause way fewer deaths. Way fewer deaths is like understating it. Like a minuscule amount of death 
just to go back to that stat of a city of 150,000 people, there'd be a death every 33 years compared to 25 from coal or 18 from oil. And it seems like such a spiteful, nonsensical path to go down. I understand and support if any country wants to pursue strictly renewables like wind or solar. But one, you can't really pursue those energy paths without a way to store that energy with like batteries, which is its own can of worms when it comes to the environment. And I'm saying this is someone who drives a battery powered car. I don't have a question here, Nick. It's just really frustrating to watch a industrialized modern Western society like Germany just kind of regress that way. Yeah, it's sad. And their their reactors were top-notch. I mean, the meme about German engineering seems to be really true. I mean, they had very performant, nice reactors. They load-followed them daily. They could follow the load very quickly and so on. Another thing that happened there is, I mean, they always considered, they said, well, we can shut down nuclear now because we can rely on all this cheap, stable, natural gas that we get through this pipeline from Russia. And so they they really doubled down on being extremely dependent on Russian gas. And of course, that had major implications for the overall geopolitics. And had they not been as dependent on that gas, things may have been a little different. That's hard to say, obviously, because it's counterfactual. But you can sort of imagine, had they not decided that like, oh, natural gas from our friends in Russia is the solution and done something different, whether it be nuclear or just some other thing beyond relying on that, that really could have changed what we're seeing today. Absolutely. You know, to bring things back stateside, let's talk TerraPower, the nuclear reactor design and development company founded by Bill Gates. They're pursuing three different reactor designs, sodium fast reactors, molten salt reactors, and its primary technology, the one that's gotten the most attention, traveling wave reactors. And two facts about traveling wave reactors stood out to me, quote, their major benefit is high fuel utilization that does not require nuclear reprocessing and could eliminate the need to enrich uranium, end quote, and quote, the reactor could be installed below ground where it could operate for an estimated 100 years, end quote. So what's the significance of these respective features? I mean, you talked about how breeder reactors while they can use a lot of natural uranium once the spark, quote unquote, is started, it sounds like traveling wave reactors don't need that at all, if I understand that correctly. And what are your thoughts on the overall future of traveling wave reactor technology? Where would you place it alongside other reactor designs in terms of cost, feasibility, efficiency, and so on? Full disclosure, I've worked at TerraPower for many years, so I, I have intimate knowledge of these systems, but I'll, I'll talk generally with you know just public information for now. Yeah, let's get into it. So the traveling wave reactor is a breeder reactor and it has the capabilities of a breeder reactor, but it's designed specifically in response to the challenges that the earlier breeder reactor programs hit. And specifically, it gets rid of that chemical reprocessing step. So you don't have to pull the fuel out, melt it down, separate the plutonium, refabricate the fuel, put it back in, which has all these complications and costs and proliferation concerns. So the concept of the traveling wave reactor is, well, forget about it. Don't even take it out. Just put it in... One correction, you do still start it up with a spark, just like any other breeder reactor. So you have some enriched uranium or plutonium to start it up, and then you surround it. I mean, the original concept was sort of like a candle. So you have the spark at one end and a bunch of uranium-238 stacked up linearly, and it would start building a wave of plutonium, so to speak, as those neutrons converted the uranium-238 into plutonium. And then as the sparks just started dying down, there would be just enough plutonium to sort of take over. And so the burning part, so to speak, 
from a nuclear point of view, shifts over to where that plutonium has increased in concentration. And then the process just repeats. And so you can imagine this, these nuclear reactions just moving down the line, just like a candle burning through a stick of wax. And so, again, the main benefit is you get most of the benefits of breeder reactors, long-term sustainability, less waste. They use lower pressure coolants that have some safety advantages, but you just don't have to do this step of reprocessing. Now, that configuration turns out, as we got in there and (laughs) researched it, uh, is challenging. There's a big materials challenge here because if you want to leave that fuel in there long enough to build up enough plutonium to take over the wave, it has to be in this neutron field in high temperature under big thermal gradients for a very long time, many, many years. And making a material that can withstand that environment, which is one of the more challenging environments ever, for a long time is very hard. And so the overall crux of the program became a materials development program where the company developed materials that they thought could handle that and have been basically testing out those materials ever since. And so as soon as that material is built up, that type of capability should be able to come online. And the candle configuration has transformed to a much more traditional looking, it looks a lot more like a breeder reactor from the 80s. There's fuel assemblies arranged in a cylinder and they get moved around every year. It's no longer underground. Turns out underground construction is pretty expensive. It's still, I mean, it's conceptually possible, but it's just not the main line in terms of proving out the technology that'll happen on a much more traditional looking plant. If those materials get developed, then heck, maybe we'll start putting those autonomous ones underground sort of in the far future, but that's not the the current development pathway. Are the benefits of traveling wave reactors that you've laid out here worth the additional complexities and nuances that come along with this technology? It seems to me from an outsider's perspective, just based on our conversation here and also just researching for our conversation, I don't know if reinvent the wheel is the right way to say this, But it goes back to what you were saying at the start of our conversation, Nick, which is that like, we know how to make reactors. We've been doing it for decades. There's a hundred different types. They're all competing. We can't seem to settle on one. If we could settle on one and just make it and fabricate it over and over and over again, we'd solve climate change. And yet I'm listening to you respond to the question and I'm letting it wash over me. And instead of getting excited about Like, oh, a new cool reactor that uses a new thing. I actually find myself getting sad. What if someone like Bill Gates dumped billions of dollars on just getting our existing reactors built? I'm trying not to be cynical here, but I'm wondering, actually, is our focus on new novel types of nuclear reactors even wise? (laughs) I know that you work in a field that is working on ever more advanced reactors, so I mean no offense. But I'm trying to focus on the practical because that's where your attention is directed. Yeah, you're certainly putting me in a tough spot. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I agree. I wish the overall majority of the nuclear effort around the world, including government funding, private funding, research, and so on, I wish it were focused on the biggest problem that I see right now, which is rapid decarbonization. And to do rapid decarbonization, you should use a good enough reactor product that we know absolutely works and we have people who know how to build and there's no question about it. One of these design certified reactors, pick one and just go out there and build a bunch of them. And that would help decarbonize right away. And it would be perfectly practical in terms of its overall safety. These existing reactors are the ones that are so much safer, as you've pointed out. Um, There's plenty of fuel to expand the fleet dramatically right now without breeder reactors. And the economics are appropriate if you serialize it, as we've seen from, for instance, South Korea. 
building their standardized reactors in the UAE, basically on time and budget. So let's just do that as the priority. I would love that. That's not the case. Almost everybody talks about new and exciting, the more exotic, the better. And this includes fusion. I mean, that's where all the headlines and focus are. Almost nobody is saying like, hmm, we had a license to build a advanced boiling water reactor, which is a 30-year-old, very nice design, down at South Texas Project, and we just let it sit there. And the license recently expired, but it's a fully designed certified thing. It's been built in record time. The Japanese built one of these gigawatt scale reactors in 37 months from breaking ground to initial criticality. So like that would be a good choice. Like let's just get that, build a bunch of those that would help decarbonize. And then, I mean, there's, there's absolutely no harm again in, in having people who are interested in next generation type reactors. They're like, well, okay, assuming we decarbonize the world now with regular reactors, well, we're going to run low on uranium. So we better be running ahead and developing materials for breeder reactors of the future and so on. So that should be there, and whoever wants to fund it should certainly feel free to fund it. But I do wish that the majority of the advocacy, funding, government support was focused on the current good enough reactors that we have. But it's really the opposite. I mean, again, the U.S. defined an advanced reactor in law as one that was not a normal light water cooled reactor. And like Illinois, they had a moratorium on building any nuclear reactor, and they just they just have been pushing to change it. And I think it won. But it said, yeah, now you can build any reactor as long as it's an advanced reactor as defined by this law that says not a regular reactor. And so it's like, oh, geez, <laughs> we've just like kneecapped ourselves from building the type of technology we know works. And so we have to keep going through these first of a kind development programs. Again, you know, I was not expecting to get this frustrated at the start of our conversation, but this idea that seems to be out there that if we go with traditional non-breeder reactors today, they won't be efficient enough to last long term because we'll run out of fuel, so we should be focusing on breeders. Okay, 10% of the world's electricity is generated by nuclear power, 10%. This line of thinking would be like saying, let's take cars, right? Like they're not without their problems and they cause pollution, but if we look at automobiles in terms of how they've increased human flourishing over the last 100, 120 years, the things that they've been able to do for people, you know, transporting goods, the way that they made a global economy possible, the ways they've made mothers and fathers be able to like take care of their children, like all the massive amounts of human flourishing that has been able to happen. Everything is silly. is like a family vacation. Every possible use of the car, right? Now, if for whatever reason... Back in 1920, we got 10% of humans driving automobiles, and then it just stayed at 10% for like 100 years. But then we started thinking, you know, maybe we should switch to electric cars. Like if we got stuck in that line of thinking at 10% of automobiles around the world, and then we were like, we shouldn't increase automobile usage until we are able to build a more efficient car. It's like, just imagine the drag on human flourishing and human advancement that would happen if we got stuck in that way of thinking with cars. And just this idea that like our nuclear power plants aren't, and I know there are many, many things that are holding nuclear power plants at 10%, but that line of thinking within the nuclear power development community seems so counterintuitive to me. There's already such a headwind against nuclear power plants already. It just seems like an additional roadblock that's being put in front of its advancement unnecessarily. Yeah. And I mean, you, you said you can blame me for your frustration, but I mean, it's even worse. I mean, I, I speak <laughs> fondly of regular water-cooled reactors, but I haven't done anything professionally to help really promote them significantly. 
I mean, I haven't done nearly as much as, for instance, the TikTok nuclear influencer who has basically been leading the campaign to save the last nuclear plant in California. That's been really interesting to pay attention to. And sometimes I'm like, well, if I if I'm saying this, then why am I focused on advanced reactors? But again, someone's got to focus on advanced reactors. And that's where my expertise is. I trained on it. And so it's not bad for me to be looking at it. But I just I still sometimes wish that and say things to try to encourage more people to try to focus on, let's just get those other ones up and running while we kind of work on this as well. Yeah, I believe the activist goes by Isodope on social media. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Isabel Boamiki. I don't know how to say her last name. We got to know each other pretty well over the pandemic, just through Twitter. And we chatted daily and sort of just talked about all sorts of like nuanced reactor stuff. And then she started putting material together. And at first, when she first contacted me, I was like, this has got to be some kind of scam or something like that. She's like, hi, I'm a model. I want to do nuclear influencing. I'm like, what? (laughs) But anyway, so then she started putting out great videos and interesting TikToks and so on. And then she turned it all into this really organized, well-done campaign to extend the life of, of Diablo Canyon. Really impressive stuff. There are only two commercially operating breeder reactors as of 2017 anyway. The BN-600 reactor and the BN-800 reactor, both are Russian sodium-cooled reactors. Every other country's breeder reactors, out of the few countries that have them right now, are experimental non-commercial ones. Do you think there's a future for commercial breeder reactors beyond Russia? And why is Russia leading the way here and not, like, let's say China or Japan? I mean, it doesn't even have to be the U.S., India, why isn't it happening anywhere else? Well, Russia had a head start over those that you listed and is the only country that really maintained their breeder reactor program that started way back in the 50s and 60s and then continued on. I mean, Japan had a big breeder reactor program. They had two prototype breeder reactors. India has one small one operating, one big one under construction, but they were started much later. France had a massive program, but they, when they shut it down in the 90s, they just stopped basically stopped working on them. But Russia had their early ones going and they just kept them going. They somehow got through this valley of breeder issues and kept theirs up and running. And yeah, that's right. They're, they're commercial. They have one of their earlier ones produced a huge amount of desalinated water as well, and as well as electricity, which is really cool. It's being 350. You look at their program and they've said things like, well, We've been running these breeder reactors for a long time, and we cannot get them to be quite as economical as our non-breeder reactors. And so our plan, as sort of the experts in this, is to build a bunch of our cheap regular reactors that aren't breeders, and then we'll build sort of one breeder reactor for every five to ten of those reactors, and we'll use that breeder reactor to do what it does best, breed new fuel, and then add fuel to that other fleet of cheaper reactors. We call this fuel cycle services. So it's sort of It helps recycle, it reduces the waste, it gets more energy out of the resource, and things like that. So that's what they said after all these years was sort of the ideal from their perspective. Now, I mean, there's certainly a lot of people and companies who are trying to make breeder reactors much more economical than current light water reactors, at which point the ideal fleet would just be a bunch of breeder reactors commercially operating without needing these extra, you know, simpler or, well, these other reactors. There's a hope that we can build breeder reactors that are indeed simpler even than the traditional light water reactors. And the the argument there would be since they use lower pressure coolants, then you would be able to reduce a bunch of the safety systems. And so 
you simplify the system by just getting rid of safety systems that are no longer needed because of the inherent physics of the lower pressure coolant, which can cool the system without any backup power or extra valves and pumps that pump water under the core. So will it happen? I mean, I, <laughs> I don't like predicting things like that. I mean, it's certainly possible. But right now, Russia is sort of the most experienced in this and their current position seems plausible to me. Of course, there always could be someone who comes forth with a, a breeder actor that's so simple and so easy to build and operate and perform so great that everybody's just going to want one of those. We can't rule that out, but it just seems a little bit unlikely to me. Our conversation has largely existed in the realm of the technical and statistical and technological, but I want to end on something a little more personal. I try to handle all of the topics I discuss on this podcast with at least a certain degree of care and nuance, but I don't shy away from discussing them. You know, I've spoken with guests about racial and ethnic identity, how to best educate children, sex differences between men and women, how to bridge toxic political divides, and a handful of other hot potato topics. The most important topics, in my view, are the most interesting ones to discuss because, well, they're important. <laughs> but out of all the conversations I have ever had on this podcast, out of all the episodes I published, the most blowback I have ever received directly was for my conversation with you about nuclear power. Really? Yeah. Wow. This was back when I was still on Twitter, to be fair. Mm -hmm. And the tweets and DMs that came my way were, to put it lightly, toxic. One could even say radioactive. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it is not your fault. But it seems to be a reflection of, manufactured or not, the controversy, quote unquote, around this topic. Now, all that blowback that I got happened over the course of maybe like two days. And then the detractors moved on to something else. You know, I'm sure they have short attention spans. But that experience got me thinking, how much of this are you getting in your line of work? <laughs> if I got all that venom posting a few positively worded tweets about nuclear power, what is your inbox like and, and how do you deal with it? thought about that sometimes. I'm like, geez, I'm really putting myself in this position where I'm always on the defensive. I wonder if this is good for my mental health. But honestly, it's not that bad. And I think it's getting better. There certainly is a lot of toxicity out there. Even within the industry, there's plenty of people arguing between all these different reactors. But then, of course, the overall anti-nuclear world has been very vocal for a long time. But it is I feel like it's just dwindling rapidly. And there's polls recently to suggest that support for nuclear is kind of soaring right now. Um, there's a lot of policy, bipartisan policy coming out that's very supportive of nuclear. So I feel like it's changing. I mean, I live in Seattle and I give talks around at various coffee shops and breweries and so on. And most of the time, the people are pretty interested. Most people's going in position is like, I don't know that much about it, but I don't think I like it. But they're curious and they're open. And if we talk about their concerns, I feel like it goes really well. And it's usually very professional. And yes, occasionally somebody gets up there and screams, who's paying you to be up there and say all this stuff? But it's pretty uncommon. And so overall, I feel like it's quite positive. Online, 
maybe I formed a bubble. I mean, I have a huge amount of people who already like nuclear who sort of self-select and follow me. And so I think those are the people who are seeing what I'm saying. And so that sort of reduces the amount. I mean, yeah, there's like two nameless accounts who always chime in and say like how horrible and toxic and deadly everything is, but they get like one or two likes and, you know, it just doesn't seem like it has any weight to it anymore. And so we can basically ignore it. I mean, I've been called all sorts of things and I think that gives me maybe a thicker skin in various arguments. Like if someone says something horribly offensive to me in an online forum, my heart rate doesn't even go up anymore. It used to, of course, like it does for anybody, but I'm just like, okay. So maybe that's a, a positive, but Anyway, long story short, it's really not that bad. And I'm sorry that that happened to you. Oh, that's fine. I was using that example merely as a way in to ask you how you deal with that stuff. You certainly owe me no apology. I, I really enjoyed our first conversation and I've enjoyed this one even more. You know, it's strange to discuss a topic like nuclear power, knowing how positive an impact it does and can have on the world and see how angry it can make certain people, right? And I think it's less people today than it was 10 years ago, to your point. Fake news is such an overused meme these days, but there is so much still of this sort of myths and disinformation surrounding nuclear energy. A lot of people are just misinformed or uninformed about it. And for that reason, I really truly appreciate the kind of work that you do. You tweet all the time about it. You're going to coffee shops, to your point. You're on Reddit, like, constantly. And not for the reasons that I'm on Reddit. Mindlessly scrolling and reading stuff at 12 a.m. when I really should be getting sleep. You're on Reddit a lot, answering people's questions about nuclear technology and promoting it as a viable energy source and answering questions from people who just want to learn more. Yeah, well, that's just one of my accounts. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, fair point. But one of the things that I appreciated more in this research, prepping for this conversation, Nick, that I didn't get to appreciate as much the last time, the last conversation, I was so just obsessed with making sure that I didn't sound like an idiot talking to you. And even then, I got certain stuff wrong that I was really focused on my research, like just how can I speak about this topic and not sound like a dumb dumb? This time, because we'd laid that groundwork in the first conversation, I got to appreciate much more your advocacy, like the amount of work that you put into just sharing your knowledge for free. And I get that you do it because you're passionate about this topic, but it really should be said because the older I get, the more I realize time, like fissile material, is a finite resource and we only get so many days on this earth and we can spend it however we want. And I think the fact that you spend so much of your time, and I'm sure you don't spend all of it this way to your point, <laughs> but the fact that you spend so much of your time sharing your knowledge for free and educating people about this topic is really meaningful. It's certainly meaningful to me. So thank you for your time. And I highly recommend, again, anyone go to whatisnuclear.com. And learn. It's just a free resource. It's fantastic. It's easy to understand. It is dense and thick with knowledge. So, Nick, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to talk with us. And thanks for all the amazing advocacy and research that you do on the topic of nuclear energy. It means a lot. Well, thank you so much for saying that. I mean, clearly, I, I enjoy it. It's definitely a hobby. But I, I'm so happy you said that. I mean, I do spend a lot of time on it. And it's great to hear feedback that 
it's interesting and is helping spread the word. So thank you. Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. If you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two-sentence review on Apple Podcasts. 